There are days that I get bothered or concerned about being a Christian. You ever feel that way? I'm sure you do. Maybe worried that people won't or don't like you, or wondering if what we believe is really true, worrying about whether we're on the right side of certain social issues of the day and what might come from us being on the unpopular side of things. For me, it most often happens when I'm surfing the web or on social media and I read an article or a post or watch a video that disagrees with me or disagrees with my faith or that misrepresents, caricaturizes, argues against or belittles believers. It disturbs my spirit and it sometimes makes me angry, gets me anxious, makes me worry about where this world is headed. And I wonder if God will ever win. But whenever you or I feel this way, we forget so much of what God teaches us in his word. That we are to expect misunderstanding and opposition and suffering. That the gospel is supposed to be offensive to those who are perishing. And that things will get much worse before they get infinitely better. Perhaps most of all, we've taken our eyes off of the power and the promises of God. Like Things are happening exactly like he said they would. And at the end of the day, he will be victorious and his kingdom will come. That is something that the book of Revelation tries to drill into us. That God is going to win. His kingdom is going to come despite present appearances. Despite how things look, there is so much more to this world than meets the eye. The passage we're going to look at today pulls back the curtain a bit on heaven's perspective on things. And I hope that this can counteract some of our doubts or fears that we feel day to day and leave us encouraged instead of bewildered. So, let's turn together to Revelation chapter 10. If you haven't already, you can find it on your phone if you don't have a physical Bible. Revelation chapter 10. If you haven't been with us as we've looked at recent chapters, we are right in the middle of seeing Jesus, the lion and the lamb, bring about God's ends on earth. And as we come to chapter 10, we have seen 13 judgments so far, signified by seven seals and six trumpets. Today's chapter leads up to the seventh trumpet blast and basically the end of time. (coughs) Excuse me. And with the rest of Revelation, we'll see a ton of symbolism and imagery today. It's so easy to miss the forest for the trees. So let's focus on God's main messages here, all right? Chapter 10 begins this way. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. 
This is not just any angel. He's a particularly mighty or strong angel. He's wrapped in a cloud, likely representing his glory and his majesty. He's got a, a rainbow halo of sorts, reflecting God's covenant faithfulness. His face is like the sun, likely from being in God's presence, reflecting that. And his legs are like pillars set on fire, displaying stability and faithfulness, holiness. Look at verse 2. It says, He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. This showed that what he was about to say had significance for the whole world. He was to be heard by everyone. It says in verse 3, He called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now talk about a noisy verse. <laughs> the angels booming voice sets off not one, not two, but seven thunders. Now there's all kinds of debate and theories around these seven thunders, what they are. We really just don't know what they are. Part of the issue is that God wanted some details kept secret here. Look at verse 4. It says, And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. That's the only time in Revelation where John is told to keep something secret and not reveal it. We don't know why. Right? And that's perhaps the point. We need to be okay not knowing some things. God is sovereign and he is in control. He is good. We don't need to know all the details. And the, this first paragraph tells us one major way. It's up on the screen there for you that we need to know God will win in the end. Or maybe I should say it doesn't say. Because God, the Lord, will conquer this earth in mysterious ways. The end will come, just as God says, and he will conquer the earth in mysterious ways. So we don't know everything. Something we do know is the gist of the angel's message. Look at verse 5. It says, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever and ever who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Now, elsewhere in scripture, frivolous or deceitful swearing is condemned. This is not that. This is a certain and trustworthy oath. It's guaranteed by God himself says he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. What does he mean that there would be no more delay? Well, have you ever done some online shopping, found what you wanted to buy, put it in your shopping cart, started the checkout process, only to be told that what you're about to purchase is back-ordered? This item is expected to ship in four to six weeks. Ah. In, our, in our instant gratification culture, we find delays 
frustrating, maddening even. But have you ever considered that we as believers have an ongoing delay of massive significance? We are waiting for something to arrive, and it's been delayed for centuries even. We are awaiting the glorious return of our Lord and the full coming of his kingdom. We're awaiting the the redemption of creation, the resurrection of the dead, the transformation of our bodies, the vindication of the saints. Scripture says, according to the Lord's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're waiting. So why are things delayed right now? Second Peter gives us at least one reason. God is patient. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, turning away from our sin, turning to the Lord. And if you haven't reached repentance, if you haven't repented before, he may even be waiting for you. But while the delay may seem indefinite from our end, The ending of the delay is inevitable. There will come a time when the delays are lifted, when things arrive. It's going to happen. The angel says, there will be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Do you notice the, the, the angel used the language of mystery? There, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. In the Bible, a mystery is something that was once hidden that has now been made plain. It's been revealed. God's gospel plan is the chief example of such a mystery. For a long time, people didn't know exactly how God was actually going to save them. Ephesians 3 tells a lot about the mystery of the gospel. And there Paul says... To me, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Here in Revelation 10, the angel said prophets had announced the mystery was coming. That it's coming, but we know that Jesus has brought it to pass. The rest of scriptures testify to it. It's no longer a total secret. But it hasn't been completely fulfilled yet. Right? We are waiting on the full revelation of it. Danny Aiken explains more about this mystery to be fulfilled, saying God's plan and purpose in creation and redemption made possible through the blood of the Lamb is now revealed plainly. It is nothing less than the answer to the prayers of the saints throughout history, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The time is now. The kingdom will come. That day is coming. You can trust God to complete his work. This is really what we express our anticipation of when we celebrate Advent. 
Right? Advent is a season of, of waiting and expectation, anticipation for God's kingdom to come in full. It was inaugurated in Jesus' first advent, and it will be culminated in his second. So we wait with eager expectation for the hope and peace and love and joy that Christ brings. I mean, this year, we face some massive hardships together. Right? I urge you, Turn your heart's focus there. Get it off the, the troubles of this world and onto Christ. Take hope in the declaration that the delay will end and the mystery will be fulfilled. That is insanely better news than anything CBC could tell us today. The Lord will return. He will conquer this world albeit in some mysterious ways. However, not everything is so mysterious. There are some clearer ways God will win that we see here, like this, that the Lord will conquer this earth through his bittersweet word. Essentially, God will bring about his ends on earth through his bittersweet word going forth. Over the, the final section of chapter 10, John has a rather strange interaction with the angel here. Look at verse 8. It says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Okay, that's easy enough. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and read it. Wait, no, that's not what he said. He said, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. John seemingly doesn't even blink, does what he's told. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made Bitter. Picture that. Like, has anyone ever told you to eat a book before? Didn't think so, right? I doubt you're going to go and skip the dishes later today and think, well, what do I want to eat? What do I feel like? Rolled up paper, that's what. <laughs> so what in the world's going on here? Why would John be told to eat a scroll and then do so? Well, this wasn't actually the first time something like this happened. And John would have known this well. The prophet Ezekiel had actually been handed a scroll from heaven one time and was told this. Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it. And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. To take the scroll and eat it, in both cases, was to take its message to heart, to internalize it and absorb it. This is how Ezekiel was commissioned to preach and prophesy for the Lord. It's no coincidence that the next words to John were also a recommissioning. Look in verse 11. It says, And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages 
and kings. Believe it or not, God will use the proclamation of his word to conquer the world. Like, if you've been saved, you're actually evidence of this happening already, as it was through his word that he conquered your heart, and his kingdom came into your life. So, why was his word both sweet and bitter? Sweet on the tongue, bitter in the belly. Well, it's sweet because it reveals the gospel and and plenty of pleasant, wonderful truths. God's goodness and mercy and love and, and grace and plans, purposes, his will, his ways to us. At the same time, it's bitter because it also brings some bad news of, of judgment, suffering, warning. Have you tasted both the sweet and bitter portions of God's word before? No, I have. It's the same when we share the word with others. Like others' reactions are sometimes sweet, sometimes sour. However, before we can proclaim it, before we can share, we've got to take it and get it inside of ourselves first, to take and eat it. At times, it's going to be delicious. At other times, it's going to leave a bitter aftertaste. So do you dare do this? Do you dare take the word of God, like Ezekiel and John, before you? I hope so. I hope that we learn to devour it daily, to let it transform our hearts and our lives. For man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need to eat every day. What do you need to do to to feed yourself this week? Notice the sequence of events. Both Ezekiel and John feed on the word of God, and then they become witnesses for God. We follow the same pattern. In chapter 11 shows us what might be a very surprising reality about how God uses us. See, the Lord will conquer this earth using his people, despite intense opposition. The Lord will conquer this earth through his people, despite intense opposition. Continue on with me into chapter 11. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told... Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, this might sound kind of boring, even like a dramatic letdown, right? Mighty angel, powerful word, measuring stick. Well, this also echoes an Old Testament prophecy, this time from Zechariah. In Zechariah 2, a man shows up, likely an angel, shows up to measure Jerusalem to see how wide and long it is. Why does he do this? Well, it was a a visible demonstration of God's protection for his people. It was basically like, measure it out, and I'm going to look after every square inch of it. Every inch you measure, I'm going to look after. God says there in Zechariah, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. 
Now, when John is told to measure the temple, it's not likely talking about an earthly temple. Those of you who know your New Testament, like what is the new temple of God? His people, right? Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? And this makes sense here, especially considering John's told to also measure the worshipers. See how he measures not just the temple, but the worshipers. So what we have here is God assuring his people that he's going to protect them with his presence. He's going to be with them. And at the same time, there's a contrast to those outside the people of God. In verse 2, he said, But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Sparing you some of the details there, there's all kinds of details here. Daryl Johnson explains that John is being told that the people of God, the church, now made up Jews and Gentiles, will find themselves in conflict for 42 months. God will protect this inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where his new priesthood, bought by the blood of the Lamb, now lives. But the outer court, where people live who are not yet part of the new priesthood, is not protected. It cannot be protected. It can only be converted or judged. You get the picture? If you're part of God's holy temple, God's wrath will not touch you. You'll be safe from his judgment, even as the world falls to pieces in the outer courts. But notice one other thing. Opposition to God's kingdom is growing here. It says the nations, referring to unbelieving humanity, will trample the holy city. So God allows opposition to intensify even as he keeps his people ultimately protected. You wonder, what's up with the 42 months? Or in the next verse, 1,260 days. Same amount of time. They both add up to three and a half years. Everyone agrees that this is a reference to the prophet Daniel, to the book of Daniel. And basically everyone agrees that it's talking about some time of intense tribulation. The main debate is over whether it agrees to, it talks about something yet to come in the future or if it refers to the entire time between Jesus' first and second comings, or both. If you want my opinion, I think that all the numbers are symbolic here and that this refers to all the time that the church, as the new temple, is in the world caught in this clash of kingdoms. This doesn't mean there's not going to be a, a time of intense tribulation at the very end. There may well be, but regardless of the details here, we can get lost in the details. We've got to focus on the fact that God's plan is going to prevail. That's the main point. The world's going to have it safe for a short period of time. God will have it safe forever. And even in the midst of tribulation and opposition, God gets his message out. Look in verse 3, like right in the midst of this, he says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, people have speculated that these two witnesses are various biblical characters, Moses, Elijah, Enoch, Zerubbabel, Joshua, James, John, Peter, Paul, 
or that maybe they represent something like the Old Testament and the New Testament, the law and the prophets, Israel and the church, perhaps all the, the faithful churches like Smyrna and Philadelphia were earlier. I would personally lean toward the witnesses symbolizing the faithful witnessing church as a whole, though if two literal dudes show up at the end times one day, I'd hardly be surprised. <laughs> but whether these are present symbolic witnesses or future literal witnesses, they are given a mission from God that covers that time span of three and a half years. This is God using his people on earth to help bring about his ends. So let's focus on what we do know about them, all right, about these two witnesses. They have an authoritative message from God and a message of repentance. It says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, like a symbol of repentance. Calling them two olive trees and two lampstands is obviously symbolic no matter what. They are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. They are meant to stand strong, to give off light. God's people will also be a source of God's power, even judgment. It says in verse 5, And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. These so-called judgment miracles will exhibit the supreme power of God, they'll expose the powerlessness of this world, and will exhort people to repent. However, one day that will all change. Look at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now, we haven't met this beast Yet, for now, just know he is the Antichrist. We'll get to know him better in Revelation 13. But God here actually allows the beast to conquer his witnesses. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the pit will make war on them, conquer them, kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these true prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. This is opposition to God's kingdom at its strongest, at its peak of success. Either God's greatest servants on earth will be publicly executed, or the whole of God's church will seem to be crushed by the enemy. Whatever it is, it's a, it's a horrifying turn of events. The Antichrist kills them, and then, adding insult to injury, the world refuses to even bury them. Now, that was a, a terrible affront in ancient cultures, in ancient times, as well as in still many places today. And we in our culture think that a, a semi-hostile Facebook post is bad. The world's not just going to 
dishonor God's people here. They, they gloat. They rejoice over them. Like the message puts it, they cheer at the spectacle, shouting, good riddance! Basically make a new holiday. Like, happy dead witnesses day. And they exchange gifts as if it were Christmas. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Aiken comments, what a stunning indictment of human depravity, wickedness, sinfulness, and evil. Remarkably, this is the only mention of rejoicing in the book of Revelation. Men and women will hate God so much that only in the killing of his precious servants are they made happy. They hated him. They will hate us. And that's the thing, right? Reading verses like these might scare us a little, but they shouldn't surprise us. Did you notice that little passing comment in verse 8 about Jesus? It says, Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Jesus was humiliatingly and excruciatingly crucified. And we follow him. We follow in his path. Like, why do we imagine that we will be able to, to remain popular or prosperous or free? We follow crucified Messiah. It's at this point that you likely wonder why I phrased the point this way that I did. I said that the Lord will conquer this earth using his people. But the only mention of conquering here is the beast conquering and killing in verse 7. God's people seem to lose badly here. The world believes they've won. The, for a time, the kingdom of man seems to clearly triumph over the kingdom of God. However, this is not the end of the story. Just like the cross wasn't the end of Jesus' story. Do you notice how long their corpses laid in the streets? Three and a half days. Not three and a half years. And he's emphasizing the days here, no matter how long this actually is, the time that the Antichrist and his world believes that they've won is extremely brief in comparison. The beast conquers, but is in reality instead conquered by God's people. Look, verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So it's a resurrection, right? This is the gospel path of suffering followed by triumph. It echoes Ezekiel's vision of God sending his breath into the valley of dry bones. And Johnson adds, it's the mystery of the cross. Jesus wins when it appears he is defeated. Jesus wins when it appears evil is in control. Jesus overcomes the enemy when he lets the enemy overcome him. And so do his people. Verse 12, Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! 
and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So first a resurrection, then an ascension. As their enemies look on aghast, the holiday revelers can turn out the lights. Party's over. And then judgment. Verse 13, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Hey, some unbelievers finally repent in Revelation. Actually, it's a beautiful twist of biblical patterns here that only one-tenth of the city falls and 7,000 die. See, both Isaiah and Amos have prophecies where nine-tenths fall and one-tenth survive. And in 1 Kings 19, Elijah laments that there are only 7,000 godly people left. Here, in Revelation, God reverses the math. And his mercy shines brightest as nine-tenths are spared. Only 7,000 perish and all the rest Repent and are saved. Don't miss it. People are saved here because of the death and resurrection of God's people. Like evil is conquered, and people will be won over, not by force, but by suffering. Sound familiar? Whether or not this specific passage refers to the resurrection of the whole church or not, it may. We all do firmly believe that in the end, God's people will be resurrected to new life. The fact of our faith, the truth, the resurrection of the dead. We believe that no matter how much we suffer or not, no matter how awful our end is or not, God will breathe his life into us again. We will rise, we will be vindicated, and we will be glorified, even as the enemies of God look on. God conquers the earth by using his people as powerful witnesses for him. And I wonder, like, are we being used in this way right now? Are we willing to be used by God, even if it means suffering, opposition, humiliation, or even death. We must not be afraid to open our mouths and represent Christ on this earth. And even just take a second right now and pray that God would make you a faithful witness for him. That, That because of you, many would give glory to God, the God of heaven. God, do that in me. An unbeliever, I beg you, Don't wait until that final day to turn to the Lord. Don't wait until you see people rising from their graves to realize the error of your ways. Let Jesus' death in your place and his resurrection be enough for you today. Give glory to him. Anyone who doesn't won't be able to say they weren't warned. says in verse 14, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Remember the three woes introduced in chapter 8? Three proclamations of disaster. 
With the very public vindication of God's people, the second woe is finally concluded. But John says, behold, the third woe is soon to come. Like, don't relax. It's coming quickly. We actually don't know. We're not told in Scripture what the third woe is. Either it's left a mystery to add suspense, or it's totally overshadowed by what comes next. Or it is what comes next. Because what comes next is clearly the end. Remember, Revelation seems to go in cycles. Okay? The end of chapter 11 gives us another look at the end of history as God kicks off his eternal reign. He was called, I don't know if you noticed this, back in verse 4, he was called the Lord of the earth. And in verse 13, he's called the God of heaven. Now he's going to bring all of that together, heaven and earth, and show off his authority over all. So, the Lord will conquer this earth and make it his own kingdom. The Lord will conquer this earth and make it all his own kingdom. Four chapters after the first one, we finally hear the seventh trumpet sound. But instead of more judgment, we hear the hallelujah chorus. Look at it. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's hard not to sing that verse. <laughs> and George Frederick Handel, of course, borrowed those words back in 1741 for his brilliant Messiah which is still performed to this day, every year, usually around this time of year. I find it remarkable how God has used that musical composition to, to sing the gospel over the centuries in places it would have never been uttered otherwise. But as hard as it is to believe, Handel's tune is likely inferior to heaven's tune. To this, that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let's focus on what this is actually saying here. Okay, it's saying that the earth has been conquered. Right? It was the kingdom of this world, run by humanity, ruled by the devil. Now it's under new management. And God has made it his own. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. What does that mean? Like, what does it mean for our world to become, to be made into Christ's kingdom? Well, it means that all the things that discourage us about the world now, they'll disappear. It means that all the sin that haunts us so much, it'll be gone. Conquered by Christ. It means that all the evil that would seek to destroy us, it'll be destroyed. It means that all the suffering, pain, heartache of this world, transformed. It means everlasting joy, unimaginable rewards, glorious worship, and God magnified. 
after the heavenly chorus bursts out in praise. Look at verse 16. It says, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. We met those guys back in chapters 4 and 5. Maybe we don't know who they are, but they're great beings, possibly the greatest non-divine beings in the universe. But they fall flat on their faces because God is that much greater. And listen to what they say. Maybe they sing here. Don't know. In verse 17 saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. They thank God for reigning as king. It's not that he wasn't reigning before. Now his rule is complete. It's comprehensive. How thankful are you? That you have a king on the throne of heaven. And how thankful are you that this world is and will be under his power and authority? How thankful are you that he's going to come back and turn this world upside down? Have you told him how thankful you are? By the way, did you notice something missing in what the elders said here? I love this. Yeah. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. It's missing. Who is to come. They dropped it. Why? Well, he's not to come anymore. He has come. His kingdom has come. With the coming of his kingdom, God's wrath will be finished against wicked humanity. It says in verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came. Like, the nations had wrath, but your wrath was greater. You won. And with the coming of his kingdom, judgment day will come as well. It says, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. See, God's judgment is always two-sided. Recompense for the wicked, reward for the righteous, bitter and sweet. For those who destroy the earth, most of all spiritually, destruction is coming. And for those who love the Lord, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined that God has prepared. So much of the world and the church Acts like this day won't ever come. But it will. Listen, you are in this verse, no matter who you are. Are you ready? When it calls God's servants prophets and saints, saints is literally holy ones. Have you been made holy by God through faith in Jesus? If so, you have a glorious future ahead of you, no matter how dark it might seem right now. It's a glorious future coming. It doesn't matter whether you are impressive or insignificant now. What matters is whether you fear, love, and serve the Lord. 
It says, the time is coming to, to be judged for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. Hey, kids, even the smallest followers of Jesus are going to be honored one day. And Achan encourages us here, yes, we will be opposed and rejected by this world. Satan will raise up enemies who will persecute us and kill us. There will be people who will celebrate and rejoice over our deaths and apparent defeat. But never forget, there is a resurrection day that awaits, a kingdom that is coming, and a reward for the servants who revere the name of Jesus. In the end, our God wins. So keep on and press on as you proclaim his gospel and pursue his glory. It is worth it all. This chapter ends with one final verse, one final striking scene. In verse 19 it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The earth here, it's become part of God's eternal kingdom, and therefore heaven is officially open to the world. It's God's most awesome and intimate presence is made open to people like us. We can see it. We can enter it. We can enjoy it. Like both the temple and especially the Ark of the Covenant, were symbols of God's presence. And the Ark, if you don't know, was a, a golden chest kept in the Holy of Holies. It contained special sacred items inside. It really represented the heart of atonement for Israel, where the mercy seat was located. But this is the Ark of the Covenant's first appearance in Scripture since way back in 2 Chronicles. And the, the Ark disappeared around the time of the exile, either destroyed or hidden away. We don't know whether this one in Revelation is that same one or if it was heaven's original model. But when it appears, again, it won't melt your face off like an Indiana Jones, but it will astound us with what it means. That God himself will have come to dwell with his people. God himself will have come to dwell with his people. That's the point of the ark. That's the point of the temple. That's the point of the storm here. And God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. That's what is known, what scholars call a storm theophany, an appearance of God in a storm. Here the holy of holies of heaven is opened up. The most sacred place imaginable. Holy of holies in heaven. God is present in mercy there at the ark. He's present in judgment with the storm. And Grant Osborne says, the themes of the entire Bible coalesce on the event that is described here. Human language fails in an attempt to state its true significance. So, if human language fails, let me draw my own words to a close now and simply ask you, 
How grateful are you that this is coming one day? Can you join in the song of heaven? We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And if you long for this, long for that day when who is to come is no longer needed, let's keep praying. Today and every day, our Father in heaven, I'll be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Father, that is indeed our prayer. You know the brokenness of our world. You see the brokenness of our hearts, of our bodies. You see the grief, the sorrow, the loneliness. You see it all. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Right the wrongs. Heal us, save us, restore us, redeem us, renew us. Resurrect us. We need you. Come, Lord Jesus. Send may your kingdom come. In Jesus' name. Amen.